The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is Deathwalker's Guide to Life.com. and thank you for joining me for episode 9 of season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Catherine L. Smith, who will be talking about physician-assisted dying at the third Death Matters Conference in Christchurch on Friday, September 23. This one-day conference is packed with a diverse range of speakers and several workshops, which are all dedicated to improving death literacy here in Aotearoa, so that we may all have the freedom to make more authentic choices and live more creative, connected and meaningful lives. But before I korero with Catherine, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. This week I'd like to talk about Remote Sympathy by Catherine Chidji, who will be appearing at the Nelson Arts Festival on October 22 as part of the Puka Puka Talks Writers Program that I curate. Remote Sympathy was shortlisted for the 2022 Dublin Literary Award, longlisted for the 2022 Women's Prize for Fiction, and was a finalist in the 2021 Ockham New Zealand Book Award for Fiction. In the story, Frau Greta Han discovers moving away from their lovely apartment in Munich isn't nearly as wrenching an experience for her as she had feared. Their new home is even lovelier than the one they left behind, and best of all, right on their doorstep are some of the finest craftsmen from all over Europe. Frohan and the other officers' wives living in this, this small community are encouraged to order anything they desire, whether that be new curtains made from the finest French fabrics or furniture designed to the most exacting specifications. In the beginning, life in Buchenwald would appear to be idyllic, yet lying just beyond the forest that surrounds them, so close and yet so remote, is the looming presence of a so-called work camp. Of course, the reason for me mentioning this book here on Deathwalker's Guide to Life is that it not only explores death denial on the horrific, catastrophic scale that was the Holocaust, but also at a very personal, individual level. 
I don't want to mention any major spoilers, but let's just say that Greta's husband, SS officer Dietrich Hahn, is not exactly honest with her about the illness that ails her. As the administrator of the work camp, he calls in one of his prisoners, Dr. Leonard Weber, to treat her. So the story also explores the power of belief in healing. It also contrasts the devastating contradiction in Dietrich's love, care and concern for his wife with his willful indifference when it comes to the inmates. There is nothing humane about his administration. As Dr Weber so chillingly reports, at Buchenwald we don't have any sick. You're either healthy or you go to the crematorium. (sighs) Yeah. The story is told from the alternating perspectives of Dr. Weber in letters he writes to his daughter, the private reflections of 1,000 citizens of Weimar, the imaginary diary of Greta, and from an interview with her husband nine years after the war, presumably in preparation for a war trial. Described as a tour de force about the evils of obliviousness, remote sympathy compels the reader to question our continuing and willful ability to look the other way in a world that is once more in the thrall to the idea that everything, even facts, truth and morals, is relative. The story dives deep into the way each character's trauma influences their beliefs, attitudes and behaviours. Chigi then begins to show how their denial begins to unravel. Now, she'll be appearing at the Nelson Arts Festival in conversation with Elizabeth Knox about both remote sympathy and her upcoming novel, The Axman's Carnival, which is the story of Marnie and her husband, Frank, although Tamar the Magpie is really the star of this story. Knox describes it as flat-out brilliant, a compulsive read about the liberating and alienating madness of fame. They may seem like very different titles, but in both books, Chidji says she's interested in chipping away at the facade of domesticity to expose darker places. In both stories, the savage and the domestic exist side by side and overlap. She explores the consequences of placing a character in a strange and potentially dangerous environment, Leonard in the Hound's house and Tamar in the house ruled by Rob. Both Leonard and Tamar act as witnesses to the events of those places. Now, Tamar is not only part trickster, part surrogate child and part witness, but he's also a tweeter, and that is the digital kind. I've already begun building my relationship with him online. You can find the links to both the details of the Puka Puka Talks event, which is called Savage Domesticity, more about remote sympathy, and Tamar's Twitter account at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Oh, and on my recent trip to Australia, during which time I attended the Byron Writers Festival, I caught up with one of Tamar's cousins in a standoff with a kookaburra. So you can also see photographic evidence of this on the site. My guest today is Dr Catherine Smith, a general practitioner at Queenstown Medical Practice. Originally from Taranaki, she grew up in West Auckland and is a graduate of Otago University where she studied medicine. Her experience is focused on general practice, accident and medical, women's and reproductive health, sexual health, sexual assault care, relationship work and sexual problems, mental health and self-worth, gender diversity care, LGBTIQ and family health. 
In addition to her basic medical training, she also has many other qualifications in obstetrics, paediatrics and cognitive behaviour therapy. She's joining me on today's show to discuss her role in providing medical support to patients who choose to end their own lives, which she will be speaking about at the upcoming Death Matters New Zealand Conference in Christchurch on Friday 23rd of September. Kia ora, Catherine, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Kia ora, Kia. What I'd like to begin by asking you is a question I ask most of my guests on the show, and it is to tell us what was your first experience of death in your life? Can you recall? Yeah, my um, my grandmother, my father's mother died. I think I was, I would have been about 25, I think. Other people had died, but nobody that I was particularly close to in my life. But the, the death of my grandmother was quite, well, devastating really because it happened very suddenly and unexpectedly. Mm. Uh, and um, I had to race from New Plymouth up to Auckland to be with the family. And seeing her body, seeing her in the... I wanted to see her. I needed to, to see her and seeing her in the funeral home. She'd been embalmed and she just looked completely wrong. It didn't look like her at all. I think they put too much embalming fluid into her and made her look very, very odd. And it, it was a really uncomfortable feeling. I thought seeing her dead was going to give me some sense of closure. But actually, it because it didn't look like her, it was a really strange and bizarre experience. Mm. Mm. Was that experience something that you carried through into the rest of your life in terms of your own relationship with death and, and, and you know, becoming a doctor or did it have an influence on you no, in that way? No, not really. And um, working as a junior doctor at Taranaki Base Hospital, um, when, you were, when you were a junior doctor, you were always the one that was called in to certify, to write the death certificates and the um, cremation certificates. So I have seen a lot of death and a lot of, you know, gruesome death, you know, hikers falling off mountains and motorbike accidents and, you know, children in car crashes and all sorts of things. So I've seen an awful lot of death and I've been present in resuscitations when people haven't survived. And the really, the really um, awful thing about it is nobody prepares you for it. Mm. I remember once being asked to certify a body and being called into the morgue at Taranaki Base Hospital and the police officer didn't even tell me what had happened and I lifted the cloth and the the, the man had shot himself in the face oh. and that that was a horrendous experience and there was nobody to debrief it with or even talk to about it. That's probably a very strong memory that I carry. And it was a young police officer, he probably thought, oh, well, she's done this before, she, she's fine. I think he was probably just as traumatised as I was. but. There was no warning, you know. Mm. So I've had some pretty gruesome death experiences, I suppose. Mm. I don't know if you've seen the series Station Eleven, but there's a scene in it, which I won't go into in to detail, but essentially one of the characters says that the main qualification for being a doctor is being able to be with, with death and to be oh, yeah. to be there with, with death. Oh, yeah, yeah. And to maintain, um, especially when there's family members around, a, a, a kind of calm because, you know, everyone looks to the doctor and if the doctor's losing the plot, it's a bit like the, if the air steward's losing the plot when the plane's in turbulence, everybody panics, right? So if the doctor loses... So there's that, the, you're very aware of the obligation to stay looking like you've got this even though you're completely lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think the training for new doctors has got any better more recently or is it still pretty much the same? Oh, I don't know. No, I think it's a bit more empathic 
there's a lot more encouragement to get supervision and have support. And mm-hmm. but I think though, yeah, there's still the 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 that kind of paternalistic, patriarchal, you know, take a concrete pill and get on with it and don't feel so sorry for yourself kind of attitude, which is really unhelpful. And I think burnout amongst doctors and stress amongst doctors is really, I could talk about on that for ages, mm. really. Probably, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> let's get back onto the topic though. Yeah, let's get on. <laughs> Did you always want to be a doctor? Is it something you knew uh, you wanted to do from a uh, young age? I, wanted, I actually wanted to be a nurse, but was exceptionally good at chemistry. And my chemistry teacher was hor- horrified when I said I wanted to leave school at the end of sixth form and and go and do nursing so he dragged me up to the guidance counsellor and she spent a few hours with me and said let's fill out some questionnaires and no you really should be a doctor so I decided I'd give it a go. So let's jump ahead now to 2020 and yeah. uh, when New Zealand became the first country in the world to ask its entire voting population to say mm. whether or not they were for against euthanasia legislation. So the referendum, as you know, I'm just filling our listeners in here, asked voters to say whether or not they supported the End of Life Choice Act 2019 and support, I believe, for assisted dying up until that point from about 2000 when they started doing surveys on it was averaged at around 68%. In the end, nationally, 65.91% voted yes. So the, the referendum was passed And I was interested to see actually on um, Wikipedia of all places that they've got a breakdown by electoral area. So here in the top of the south, Nelson voted people 69.85% voted yes and 71.36% in the Tasman West Coast electorate. You know, but some other electorates, the lowest I think was Mangare, which was only 38.37 saying they supported the bill. Anyway, as a result, physician-assisted dying became a legal health service in New Zealand, Aotearoa, from the 7th of November in 2021. So when did you sort of form your views on euthanasia and were you involved at all in the lead-up to the referendum in terms of campaigning or were you just an interested observer? I've got lots of other stuff going on, but I've always been an advocate. For choice. for, For choice in all sorts of aspects of life and bodily agency. People having control of their own bodies. I mean, as a GP, I've seen, I've seen some horrendous deaths of illnesses that you can't treat palliatively. Oh, motor neurone disease and pancreatic cancer and gastric cancer and esophageal. Some of these cancers, particularly, that are just so painful and horrendous. And you know, I've had patients beg me to end their life, beg their families to do it for them. I can't stand this anymore, that kind of stuff, and mm. to not be able to do that. And I think anybody that's seen those kind of deaths, even with all the morphine and all the drugs in the world, you cannot give these people a beautiful, peaceful death. And the other thing for them is watching their families see them suffer adds to the the overall suffering. So um, having experienced that firsthand with my own patients and the patients of others, it, all it's done is enforced my belief in people's choice over the way they go. Mm. So mm. I was what you would call an early adopter. I think there's a lot of GPs that uh, that support it. There's a lot of GPs that don't. There's a lot of GPs that support it. I think it's that attitude. Oh, I wait and see what happens. I wait and see how it goes. But I think what what's going to bring other GPs into it is when they have a patient of their own that wants that service, and that's when they get to choose really. Mm-hmm. Do I want to be able to do this for my patient or do I want some other doctor to come in and do it? 
And it is a choice for GPs, isn't it? Because they can be conscientious objectors to to mm-hmm. delivering the, the service. Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and many are. So for our listeners, some of whom may not be here in Aotearoa, can you just briefly explain who is eligible? I mean, who does this particular end of Life Choice Act bill benefit because it's not. It's You're not talking about the, the eligibility, the patient criteria. That's right. Yes. yes. Okay, so that's really clear. Our criteria is quite rigorous, much more rigorous than some other countries, like Canada, for example. There are, I think, it's six. You have to be a New Zealand citizen. You have to be over eighteen. You have to have a terminal illness that gives you basically less than six months to live. Um, so an irreversible illness with less than six months to live. You have to have unbearable suffering that can't be relieved by other services or medications. You have to be of sound mind, which is a really interesting one if we're going to discuss the the dementia Alzheimer's topic because that's a really big one for a lot of people because it excludes them. You have to be of sound mind, particularly at the time of the assisted death. And um, there has to be no evidence of coercion. So it has to be your choice that you make freely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's a, that's a summary of the, of the eligibility criteria. And because it is quite rigorous, one of the sad things is those people that don't qualify, that want it and don't qualify. And there was a recent article, a gentleman in Waikanae who's in 90-something years of age and is incapacitated just through degeneration and can't do anything very much and wants to pass if it doesn't qualify because he hasn't got a diagnosis of less than six months to live. So mm. um, he's one of the sad ones that, that can't have the service. Yeah, mm. Actually, that was going to be my next question. It's probably a question that you can't really answer, but I was curious if you had a sense of what percentage of those who want to end their own life does the legislation actually meet the needs of because that's one example uh, you mentioned people who may have in their if they could put it in an advanced care plan be able to say that if I have dementia and I can no longer recognize my loved ones and my family I would like to have assisted dying etc. I personally would like to have assisted dying. I've got one case at the moment he's got brain tumor and his biggest worry is that he won't be of sound mind on the day. Hmm. That's because right. It has to be on the day, doesn't right. it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. you have yeah. to be of sound mind when you do the first lot of paperwork. Hmm. You also have to be of sound mind on the day of the assistant, which is a really interesting one because it almost, for him, it says, you know, the, the conversation we had was, well, do I have to do this earlier just in case? I can't hmm. do it, you know? it's it, There's all sorts of... Um, kind of unplanned for or thought through consequences of the of the criteria. I mean, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying this is kind of how the it reality. is. Yeah. yeah, that's the reality of it. Yeah, and you end up having these really interesting conversations with people. Mm. Mm. I found some research um, that had some data with the numbers from um, those who had applied between the 7th of November 2021 and the end of June this year. And of the 400 people who had applied, only 143 had essentially gone ahead and died. And it was sort of interesting to look at the demographics of that too much. The majority of the people who were applying were New Zealand, European or Pākehā. Yeah, two-thirds with cancer. Ethnic and religious kind of divisions here, you know, about what's what's acceptable and what isn't, 
you know, and often family pressure as well, you know. I had a case where a woman wanted it, but her family refused refused to support her in it. Nobody was going to support her in it, so she felt she couldn't access it. Yes. I mean, it was her choice. However, it wasn't her choice. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. Mm. Mm. Actually, I do have a, a question in a moment about, you know, that, that dynamic between the patient's um, the people wanting to make that choice and, and their whānau. So I'll ask you in a moment. But firstly, I just wanted to bring in now the fact that you will be speaking at Death Matters on the 23rd of September in Christchurch. And the title of your presentation is uh, Physician Assisted Dying When a Doctor Helps You Let Go of Life. So if you can just tell the listeners a little bit about what you are going to be covering in that presentation so that they know about it and they might want to come along and have a listen. I think, well, some of it's just the history of the legislation and how that's evolved, how it's been adopted. It's quite, you know, I, I could talk on this for a very long time. Melanie's been really good in giving me a little bit of a, a breakdown on how she wants me to present. But it is, I think it's going to be the basics, the process, how it works, how a person accesses the service, what the criteria are, the actual process itself, and then maybe to address some of the concerns that people have about it. Because there are some deep concerns on the coercion front, you know, the whole mm. let's bump off Nana so we can get the house kind of thing. But also then kind of my, I suppose, my experience of it as, a, as an earlier doctor, doctor providing it. So, yeah, it, it, probably at the kind of level that we're discussing this, I imagine. Okay, great. So I won't get you, therefore, to answer the next couple of questions I had, which really are things that you are going to be talking about in detail there. But... Perhaps you could just share for our listeners, because you mentioned that one of the purposes of your presentation is to explore the risks and benefits more deeply. So I'm interested to hear from you what risks you think both patients and their whanau should consider when making decisions around. Risks as in, are you talking about risks of the process? Yes, well, I I guess it means risks that you've identified in your experience, whatever they may be, process or... The criteria, it's actually a very simple, straightforward process. Well, I was actually, I joined a forum writing a handbook for doctors thinking about doing it. And everyone dived into to issues and problems with the system and blah, blah, blah. And my point was, look, this is actually really simple and straightforward. Don't be afraid of it. It's not scary. It's actually empowering and quite beautiful. And risk, I don't know, I don't know what the risks are. I suppose the biggest risk is, you know, not being able to get an IV line in or something like that so that you can't go ahead and provide the service, you know, that you're not actually able to, to give the person access to the medication. It's so, it's so rigorous and thorough. Like one of the things that the, the ministry have done by setting up this service is actually supported the doctors really, really well and made sure that you do follow these incredibly complicated steps. You have to ask some really deep personal questions right up front. And so by the time you get to the actual assisted death, it's a very simple, straightforward and quite peaceful process. Mm. Risk-wise, if you're thinking about the risks of people being coerced, it's pretty clear you have to see the patient on their own and you have to ask them repeatedly if they feel any pressure from any family members or any external pressure. 
And in my experience, I've been involved in, I think, eight cases so far. Not all of them have gone through. Some of them have died before we got to the point of assisting the death. There hasn't been a single situation where there's been any evidence of coercion. In fact, often there's family members who, who really struggle with it and don't want it to happen but want to support their loved one in making that choice. I don't know, maybe I will be involved in a case where coercion occurs, but uh, it's certainly almost been the reverse from my experience. Mm. So with that example you just mentioned of the person who died before the process could be completed and, 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 and it could happen, how long does it take normally? Lengthwise, well, that's about availability of practitioners. Okay. You have to see in terms of process, do you want me to speak to, to process? Sure. So you have what's called an attending practitioner, so that's the first doctor that comes and sees you. Then you have to see a completely separate independent practitioner. So there's the AMPs, the attending, and then the IMP. So I've been both AMP and IMP, and you go and make an independent assessment. And if either the AMP or IMP disagree on eligibility criteria, then a psychiatrist can be brought in to kind of adjudicate there, I suppose, if you like, in terms of eligibility. So you see the AMP, you see the IMP, then both decide that you're eligible through the criteria that I've already discussed. And then you have a, a, a kind of meeting paperwork to set the date and the time when you wish it to happen. And often, like I had one I just spoke to today, where this person qualifies, but when I said, oh, you qualify, they said, oh, that's wonderful news, that's great. I'm not quite ready yet, I'll get back to you, right? It's that, it's that whole, and, and I think for a lot of people, it's that knowledge that I have choice here. I can actually, I can let nature take its course, or if things get to the point that I can't bear it, I have choice, right? So if you set, the, you set the date and the time, and then it's all about the availability of the AMP, because it's the AMP, the first person that sees you, you sign your paperwork, it's that person that then goes on to assist your passing, mm. right? So it's, it's about availability. And it takes about a week from the date being set to organise the medications. There's two pharmacies, one in Christchurch and one in Auckland that organise the medication so we write the prescription the medication gets couriered to us and we take it to the patient so probably we say give a week give a week for the medication to arrive so you can't say oh I'd like it to be tomorrow thanks Uh, there needs to be a little bit more organisation than that but the time frame can be quite rapid it's very dependent on the practitioner availability and I, I think a key point to make is that the patient has a choice right up until the very moment, essentially, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I know you mentioned in your introduction that through your experience as a GP for many years, you've been with a lot of people whose deaths were very, very challenging and difficult, and that's why you have supported euthanasia and that assisted it's dying. One of the reasons, yes. Yeah. Probably not the main one, to be quite honest, but it's certainly... It's certainly one of the reasons that endorses or strengthens my view, yes. Mm. What would be the main reason then? Bodily autonomy. Yes. Actually, yep. choice. Yep. Yes. I'm a yep. very strong believer that everyone has the right to control their own destiny, right? Very, that's, that's, and I don't see myself as, I don't know, an ender of life. I see myself as a catalyst and enabler. But I think it, it gives people... Um, it gives people a, a legitimacy. It supports I, what I believe is a fundamental human right, which is my own control of my own body. So that's my primary reason. Mm. Um, there are many others. Mm. Thank you. So you mentioned earlier that 
it's particularly beneficial to people for with illnesses, disease that for which palliative care is not an an effective treatment strategy. I know that some concerns have been raised by those who work in the hospice sector about you know, the number of people who might not have access to palliative care. Or, and, you know, I think in the figures, it's something around 20% of those who had applied for assisted dying said that they didn't, or the record was that they hadn't had palliative care. I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that because I'm, it's, not a, it's not a black and white either or kind of situation at all. All the cases I've been involved with have had access to superb palliative care. I think that the people that provide palliative care in New Zealand do a fantastic job and I applaud them for what they do. I would love for the assisted dying community and the palliative care community to work together, and I think that there could be a, a, a really good synergy there. However, I am aware that there are other forces at play, but I would like to say that I have deep, deep respect for the people that provide palliative care, and um, there are many conditions and, and many people who, who want that service and want to die peacefully and naturally. Yeah, and once again, that comes back to agency and choice. And assisted dying is just another choice that people have. And a lot of people that choose to access it don't actually use it. They just want to know that it is there for them should they choose to have it. Hmm. And, and, and that, that um, person that I referred to just before, the relief that they qualified was really powerful. And then, okay, I'll let you know. You know, so it's and that and that's fine. That's exactly what it is. It's like a I don't know, money in the bank. You know, a buffer, a backstop for some people. For others, it's this is definitely what I want, and I want to go down that pathway. Yeah, it's it's about choice. Mm. And you said a little earlier that uh, your experience of being with people has been empowering and beautiful. Can you talk a little bit more about the, I guess, the emotional, for you, for yourself personally? I, I have permission from one family mm. to share an experience, and I won't say where and when. I'll try, I want to be as respectful as possible, so certainly no names or locations. But the death of this person involved her four children and husband. And they were all wrapped around her. Oh, God, I'm going to start crying. Her husband had his head on top of her head, children down by the side. One of her sons was rubbing her feet. Mm. Another one. And they were from all over the country. So they all came. That was the other thing. It's about that having my whanau around me at, at the time. And, and I quietly was able to give the medication. And she had tears. But it was actually, it was very beautiful and it was very peaceful and yeah, I, I, I thought it was lovely. It wasn't scary. It wasn't frightening. It certainly wasn't horrible. And I know one of the children was not as comfortable with it as the others, but respected his mother's decision. And he, he just quietly said, oh, look, they're just at the end. Thank you. And one of the things I felt, and I'm not sure if I was correct or not, was that once it was done, though, it was appropriate that I left as quickly as possible, you know, that that, that that my service had been provided and the, the paperwork needed to be completed and I certainly didn't need to hang around. But it was a really beautiful, peaceful passing. Mm. She had quite a horrendous neurodegenerative condition, definitely mm. unbearable suffering. Thank mm. you for sharing that. And that's the thing too, isn't it, with assisted dying that, you know, something like I think three quarters happen in people's homes and I guess probably the other quarter might be in aged care but it is something where people can 
choose to, to, to die at home, which is often a wish for many, many people. Surrounded by their loved ones, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. So we're almost out of time. So I'm just going to ask you one last question about this and then a fun, lighthearted question to end with, which I do with all my guests. What have you learned since the introduction of the end-of-life choice um, act about physician assisted dying that you could never have predicted before it became law is there anything that's taken you by surprise or wasn't something that you i don't don't want this to sound flippant but how simple it is like to me it's it's clear and it's simple i remember leaving the first case not feeling anything particularly negative or earth-shattering just how i suppose I would use the word simple and right would be the things that I've learned. And it's all about, particularly as the AMP, as the person, as long as you're sure that this is really the the desire of the patient, because it's all about them. Of course, the family and the, 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 the spouse and all that sort of thing are, are part of it, but it's actually all about them and their wants. And if you're really certain and clear, and the whole process is all about clarity, if you're certain and clear, it is simple and it is right. Mm. Yeah. So for it's that right. reason, the, the yeah, like you say, you speak of the clarity, the, the, the very clear criteria where there's no, oh, maybe this means this or this. It's just super clear and that, that is mm. a real gift perhaps to those who are making the decision. It's probably a big question and far we couldn't cover it today, but I'll be interested to hear from you at the conference on the 23rd of September, whether, you know, looking forward, you know, what improvements there might be or changes there might be further down the track to the legislation. I've already got lots of ideas on this. I bet you have. I bet you have. So my final question is something I ask all my guests. And I, it's for my farewell songs playlist. So I'm putting, I have a spot, a playlist on Spotify. And so I ask all my guests to nominate one song that they would like played at their own funeral wake or celebration of, of their life. And I invite people to just say the song that first pops into your head. <laughs> it would be Train, Drops of Jupiter. Train, Drops of mm. Jupiter. Oh, I don't know that one. And this is a wonderful thing. You'll definitely recognise it. Oh, okay. I just love it. It's it's a wonderful celebration of a man's adoration of a woman. It's beautiful. Oh, lovely, lovely. I mean, it's a delightful way to get a collection of really, really good songs together. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining me today on the show, Catherine. I really appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing you in person in a few weeks down in Christchurch. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you very much. Okay. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland and I've just been speaking with Dr. Catherine L. Smith. And now it's time for Death on Screen. And today I'd like to talk about the series Station Eleven, which you can watch on Neon in New Zealand and on Stan in Australia. Station Eleven is based on the international best-selling book of the same name by Emily St. John Mandel, who I recently saw at Word Christchurch in a fabulous Faraway Near session chaired by Rachel King. The Faraway Near, by the way, is a fab concept dreamed up by Word director Nick Lowe, which makes digital appearances by international authors extremely intimate, like they're actually sitting at the same table as you, making the session feel more like dinner party than a house theatre. 
Station Eleven, the book, was published pre-COVID, which subsequently elevated Mandel to profit status, given that its story was so prescient. Set before and after a fictional flu pandemic that wipes out 99% of the global population, it explores how the surviving 1% begin to rebuild their world, what they choose to leave behind and how they hold on to the best of what they've lost. Because the flu doesn't have an incubation period, the speed with which it spreads is exponentially faster than COVID. On the show, which jumps backwards and forwards in time, people die within hours of showing symptoms, in their hotel rooms, at their steering wheels, or while performing on stage, like one of the main characters, Arthur Leander. Within a very short period, electricity, water, and internet stop working too. And by the 100-day mark, approximately, civilization has completely collapsed, almost everywhere on Earth. The only survivors are those who had sufficient food and water when they voluntarily locked themselves in their homes, or those who were stranded at an airport and agreed not to leave, nor to let anyone else in. The premise could make the series terrifyingly bleak, but despite almost 7 billion deaths, it's actually strangely uplifting, possibly even qualifying it as a post-apocalyptic utopian rather than dystopian tale. One of the main characters is Jeevan Chaudhary, who attempts to save Arthur's life after he dies of a heart attack brought on by the flu. Jeevan races up to the stage, but when he gets there, realises he doesn't know how, what to do. He apparently has no first aid training, let alone any paramedic skills. About nine months after the pandemic, Jeevan is mauled by a wolf and then brought back to life by a physician called Terry, who we learn soon that lost her medical licence pre-pandemic. The quid pro quo is that he undertakes training and then helps her deliver a whole bunch of doomsday conception babies. Remember, it's roughly nine months after the pandemic, so you know how these characters decided to distract themselves from the end of the world. Jeevan is at first a reluctant trainee, medico, until Terry tells him, you're already qualified. The courage to bear witness to death is the job. The courage to be there. And of course, formal qualifications matter little in the post-pandemic world. When I got home from Word, totally entranced by Mandel's approach to storytelling, I binged watched the series. But as soon as I'm on the other side of this year's Nelson Arts Festival, I'll be reading the book version, along with her latest novel, Sea of Tranquility. So that's it for today's show. Before the next episode of Deathwalker's Guide to Life, I'll be heading back to Christchurch for the third Death Matters Conference on September 23, 2022. I hope you can join me there for a day of exploration and discovery with presentations, Q&As and workshops on a variety of subjects, from how to make your own coffin, preparing yourself emotionally and spiritually for your own death, putting together an advanced care plan, caring for someone dying at home, looking at who and how people can choose to end their own lives, and even an after-death communication workshop with Spirit Whisperer and psychic medium Jacqueline Mitchell. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. Mm-hmm.
The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.